Hey, thanks for listening to The Create Unknown. To unlock the extended ad-free full episode, sign up at patreon.com slash thecreateunknown. Now on with the show. This episode is brought to you by Audible. Go to audibletrial.com slash thecreateunknown to get a free audiobook and stay tuned for my book recommendation. That's audibletrial.com slash thecreateunknown. there. Real quick, I wanted to record this kind of prologue to this interview that we did with Sean Malone, who is the director of media over at FEE, which is the Foundation for Economic Education, because in that episode, I really wanted to talk to him about kind of a disappointment that I have with Stranger Things, which is a show that I really loved the first season of and really did not love the subsequent seasons of. And I don't think that we got to the bottom of why I feel that way. And I think that I've gleaned a little bit of insight since then from this book, which is called The Science of Storytelling. This just came out. It's by a guy named William Storr. I would love to get this guy on the podcast. First, I have to finish the book. <laughs> I, th- I think you should read it too. Maybe we should yeah. both read it and then get him on the podcast to talk about it because it is Really good. That would be cool. That would be awesome to get really familiar with the work and and then talk to him about it. And that was, um, you know, we, we actually talked about that uh, with a future guest about how rare that is to have people discuss a book with somebody when they've actually read that book. Most of the time, journalists or interviewers, uh, they aren't familiar with the stuff in the book because uh, it's not what they actually do. And they don't have time to do more than like read a summary of it or read the first chapter, the introduction, the end. Being able to go through a whole book and, and talk to somebody about it, especially on a topic as deep and nuanced as the science of storytelling, it kind of undergirds every like every episode we do, doesn't it? Like, okay, back to Stranger Things. Here is Mm -hmm. after recording this episode with Sean, I thought about it a little more. A couple of things popped into my head. And then I want to read a passage from the very beginning of this book. So it's not spoiling anything. It's like literally like the first five pages. The first thing I realized after this recording was that my expectations for what the show was were off. So from what the show was and what I thought it was from season one to what it actually is, Mm -hmm. this was not congruent. (laughs) I was expecting it to be one thing. It ended up being something else. So if you love the something else and Stranger Things is your favorite show, that is awesome. And I don't want this to be like, well, Kevin doesn't like this thing that I like. So now I feel bad about liking that. Like that's the worst thing ever. And I don't want that to come across that way at all. Cause that's really lame. Yeah. I go through every single day thinking what would, what would Kevin think of what I'm doing right now? Like Every bite of food I take, I'm like, oh, I like how spicy this is, but is it too spicy for Kevin? Is it not spicy enough for Kevin? Right. And I have a feeling that everybody listening to this podcast goes through their days that, that same way. We wear bracelets that say WWKD. <laughs> <laughs> I should make those ironically, but then it, no, we should not do that. It's, it's so lame. Okay, let me, let, let me, let me read this. 
because I think this gets to a problem that couples with my like expectation failure of Stranger Things. Okay. So um, the book says, I, sus- I suspect that it's an emphasis on structure that's responsible for the clinical feel from which many modern stories suffer. I believe the focus on plot should be shifted onto character. It's people, not events, that we're naturally interested in. It's the plight of specific, flawed, and fascinated individuals that makes us cheer, weep, and ram our heads into the sofa cushion. The surface events of the plot are crucial, of course, and structure ought to be present, functional, and disciplined, but it's only there to support its cast. And I think that shows like Breaking Bad or like Mad Men support its cast flawlessly. And that's why those shows resonate so well. And that's why you can watch multiple seasons of this thing and you get to see the journey of Walter White becoming Heisenberg. Like that's a thing that happens over the course of time and it develops and it grows and it blossoms. And, you know, you have to watch the show to see where it goes from there. I personally feel like I thought that Stranger Things was going to be that way. And I don't think that it is. I think that instead, it's really a show about its set pieces and it's kind of like its setting and and its music. And it's about that stuff. And the characters are just kind of there to support Like, here's an homage to the Terminator, and here's an homage to Invasion of the Body Snatchers, and here's an homage to, like, what an 80s mall was like. Like, I think the show is more about those, like, settings and events than it is necessarily about exploring, like, the relationship of, like, Hopper to Eleven. Like, I think that that stuff is there, but it's, to me, it's very surface level. To, to kind of get to the exciting part of, you know, like uh, there are evil Russians because it's the 80s and, you know, Russians were the notorious, you know, movie bad guy. So we have to have that. Does that make sense? It does. And, and as you bring up the mall example, the thing that I liked the most about that, it was fun to see shops that I remember and especially you know, where, where we grew up, those shops were around way too late. (laughs) So like like when they were like hot in 1985, if they, you know, we still had them in 1995, you know, that was really cool. But the actual cool part of that whole kind of montage at the beginning was seeing Eleven shopping for the first time and what it was like for her to see all these possibilities and be able to try different things on and like get a thrill out of looking different for 60 seconds and then trying something else on like that was a moment that mattered in her character development that all of a sudden she's like interacting with this huge world of possibilities that did not exist until now. Um, The mall itself and all of that stuff, I can see people focusing on that. And I saw them on Facebook talking about that. Like, did you see this, you know, the old logo for whatever store or like, oh, my God, I remember when this thing was around. Um, it's almost it's almost a distraction, you know, where where it's like, yeah, but did you see the girl seeing like uh, all manners of clothing in one place that she could put on for fun? Like, did you see that happening? And that's just a tiny, tiny little example of 
of something being more about those characters than about uh about the plot and and i i can see why you you would value the one thing over the other and why other people would be would value you know that that overall plot yeah yeah that's the kind of the realization that i came to after we talked to sean is like my expectations of what this show is are, are were off they were just wrong and like i totally get it now <laughs> like i totally get like seeing like in 80s um like a carnival or whatever is more of the point than kind of like exploring why anything about like will like that's just not what the show is that's what i thought it was going to be i ended up disappointing me greatly that it wasn't that but like now I know why. And that's really what I wanted to know. I feel like like you have this this feeling of lightness and clarity about you. This is so weird to say, but when you're talking about it now, it's almost like you had this mysterious illness. You went to the doctor and you came back and you're like, now I finally know why my ears have been ringing for seven months. And like he gave me a pill and now they don't ring anymore. You know, like your problem is is gone now. (laughs) And you look like, Oh yes. All of the pain is out of your face. Isn't it? You know, like, Oh, I can, I can see it right in your eyes that everything's better now. And that's what's happened. And when you talk about, uh, stranger things now, feels (laughs) good after having read this feels good. And I went to Sean Malone as my doctor to diagnose me. And unfortunately, like I wasn't, uh, you know, clear enough in explaining to him my symptoms. So he was unable to deliver a diagnosis. However, that makes sense. You know, going through that process with him was really helpful. Hearing from you and hearing from him kind of coming back at me at different things. And then also, again, just starting, just cracking open this book. I was just like awash in realization where I just felt, yeah, like it's a nice catharsis to finally, because it has been a little bit of a torment for me over the past couple of years of like, man, I thought this was going to be my favorite show of all time. And now I really don't care about it at all. Why? What happened? And now I get it. But again, if it's still your favorite show of all time, that's awesome. It's, it's, it's not, Mm -hmm. you know, any fault of uh, the show itself, the show is just not what I thought it was. <laughs> and now I know why. And it led you to a better understanding of what's happening in these shows. It led you to a book that I'm excited to read and excited to talk about. I, I, I like this. I like this path. And I like the fact that that you didn't nail it with perfect wisdom on on the first attempt. Like you showed the way this process works. And it's actually exactly the same as a whole lot of videos work, isn't it? Like Vsauce 2 videos where it's like, oh, uh, I'm researching to this point and then you get that where is it moment. Uh, and it's like, oh, I've got to rethink this thing and I've got to rethink this thing. Goes beyond the creativity side too. Like that happens with everything. That happens with me cooking. <laughs> like I, I will do a, like a recipe a certain way and just be like, oh, why do I hate that? You know, like, you know, what's the 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 little detail that I'm not liking and it might take you a while to figure out, but then you get it and it's amazing. I I love witnessing this process. So I'm happy now. I finally understand. Now you will get to watch me struggle though. (laughs) Like without having that understanding, uh, as we interview Sean, 
who is a, a friend and a person who loves ideas and mm. and talking through ideas and analyzing things. That's what he does on his great, great series, Out of Frame, which you can check out on YouTube. And uh, without further ado, though, you know, now I'm happy. I'm in a good place. Here is our interview with Sean Malone. Welcome to The Create Unknown. I am Kevin Lieber. With me, as always, is Matthew Tabor. And today, joining us is our very special guest and friend, Sean Malone, Director of Media at FEE, the Foundation for Economic Education. And uh, you do a lot of stuff for, for FEE there, Sean, including being a YouTuber. What's that about? Yeah, well, that I mean, that is true. And it's kind of weird because uh, I don't totally think of myself that way. But, um, you know, when I when I started Fee, I mean, my, my background's all, all in, not all in because it started in music, but it ended up being in video production and doing that kind of thing for the kinds of organizations, it, it, kinds of organizations like Fee. So other organizations that that talk about political philosophy and economics and try to educate people on some of those kinds of ideas and um, I've been doing that for a long time, and Fee was the first chance I think I had to kind of make, um, to, to like actually greenlight stuff and actually really have creative control over the kind of products that we were making and, and the kinds of videos that we were doing. And that, um, you know, allowed me to take what I had learned over the years working on other people's YouTube channels and working on big documentary projects and, and all those kinds of things to turn it into something where we could actually start producing content that other people hopefully actually want to watch. And part of that was to do a pop culture series called Out of Frame, which uh, is a video essay series where I, I look at movies and, and TV shows, and I've, I've looked at music history and a bunch of different things, uh, and then talk about the economics in it and talk about the, the political philosophy ideas in it. Um, this uh, I've done you know tons of Marvel stuff because that... <laughs> goes over pretty well in general. Um, I've done, but I've also done more obscure things like, like the shape of water. Um, I did stuff about the PMRC hearings in, in the, the nineties with, um, twisted sister and, and John Denver and all those guys kind of battling censorship. Um, well in the eighties and nineties and, uh, yeah. And, and so that's actually done really well. And then we also have an animated series. That's actually a new episode just came out minutes before we started recording this. Uh, called called common sense soapbox and and so I I ended up being both a uh, a creator in the in the very direct sense where I'm actually making content every month that's my voice literally and figuratively and then also um, you know a, a producer of other people's content that also lives on our on our channel. We left out one element of your title though. I have, and that is the title of your Discord title which is Citizen A. Sean's a, Sean is in our, our Discord. Uh, and so anything that we end up talking about here, I, I think you can probably accost him in the Discord to talk about that, ask questions about it. Uh, we'll have a link 
in the show in the description uh, so you can you can pop in. Uh, and but he joined Discord because of us, and and this is true. And we joined Discord because of Carson. Yeah. <laughs> so so let's all just you know follow the 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 trail of crumbs back to Carson being like the boomer uh, uh, whisperer. He's like yeah. the boomer whisperer for for Discord and like right. folding us into to what the what the uh, kids are are doing these days. Man, but, I dude, I guys, I listened to that episode that with Carson, and and I you know I'm blown away. And also to, to your guys' point, like like smart, dumb humor, and trying to figure out what I couldn't even begin to do most of the stuff that that guy does. I'm glad that I'm not even trying to compete in that space. He would crush me so hard. He's so good at. We were just talking about that earlier because you got some Quackity merch, and I yeah. feel like Quackity is in the same arena of just coming up with the funniest, cleverest, dumbest thing you could possibly imagine. He just had a tweet recently. That went very viral, has half a million likes, where he wow. is talking about how babies are useless because they don't pay taxes. <laughs> That's the crux of the joke. Well, he's not wrong, is he? He's not. Well, there's an element of truth in, in every really great joke. <laughs> so I want to get into a number of things. I want to get into being a creator, working with a foundation and, and the freedom that you have there. But first, I want to get into why I... And mad about Stranger Things, <laughs> which which we can we can preface by saying the theme that undergirds all the videos that that Sean does, or at least most of them, is taking some kind of concept and and having this amazing storytelling that that elucidates that concept and weaves you through uh, whatever the movie is. Like you mentioned, the Marvel ones, it's going so much deeper into uh, movies like. Uh, like Endgame, mm -hmm. uh, where everybody saw them, liked them, talk about them, analyze them. That's that's awesome. But going a step further than that and presenting a concept uh, with a heavy degree of storytelling so that you can spend 15 minutes on something you probably didn't think about when you watched that movie. So in terms of storytelling, uh, Sean's the best of the best on that. Wow, wow man, I, I appreciate that. Thank you. Sean, that's why I wanted to bring you on because I'm mad about Stranger Things. I want everybody <laughs> to know that I'm mad about it because I loved season one yeah. so much. Like it seemed like it came out of nowhere and it just hit all of the right notes for me, at least. Uh, all of the homages that it paid were right up my alley. And season two came along and I was like, Ugh, this feels different and season three just dropped over the summer mm -hmm. and i gotta tell you we didn't finish it I wow. we're done by this really? yeah we no we stopped this episode before the final episode we stopped on episode seven <laughs> I, we were both just like, i i'm way too I ocd and completist to do that man like i could <laughs> never do that well i know and that's why i want to talk to you because you are the the one person that i know that Dude. thinks about storytelling more than anyone that watches, absorbs, digests, and just kind of analyzes stories almost as like a full-time hobby. So, Sean. That is kind of true. What happened with Stranger Things? What happened? What happened? <sighs> Man, I don't, I don't know. And I will say, I, I don't actually hate the second two seasons of, of, of Stranger Things, second and third seasons. Um, they are very, very different from season one, though, un undoubtedly. And I think... One aspect is I, I think Will, um, like Will ended up being this like MacGuffin basically in season one, right? And, yep. uh, and then 
he's back. And I don't know that the writers really know, knew what to do with him. And then in season two, they're like trying to bring him back into the show the whole time and give him these visions and premonitions and, and, you know, all of this sort of uh, Lovecraftian monsters in, in, in the upside down world and all that kind of stuff. But I, I actually think that that, if I'm guessing at what your bigger problems were, they probably largely stemmed from that, which is that there's like almost nothing for him to do except deliver exposition about monsters that are going to come. But he didn't really do anything about anything. He didn't really have anything to do with anything else. I don't know. I, I, I haven't probably thought as like in, in like an angry way about Stranger <laughs> Things because, because I actually still enjoyed uh, both seasons. Actually, my, my bigger beef is, is in season three with like the radical departure of Hopper's character. Because mm-hmm. like, like Hopper in season one is like a nice, he's like, he's a curmudgeonly guy with some baggage that he needs to deal with. In season two, he's becoming a father for the first time and dealing with his baggage and then in season three, he's like just a complete asshole. And I'm like, and right. I and I don't know how that happened. Like he's like, oh, his daughter's adoptive daughter is making out with a kid. So let's become the worst person in the world. I, I don't know. That's doesn't feel like the right response to me or like a natural response. But I don't that's know. my gripe, by the way, that my my one of my few gripes. I mean, I am in the same progression here where season one blew me away. Season, 12, season two was good. Uh, three, I watched to the end. I mean, it wasn't my favorite show of all time, but it, you know, it was all right. I don't regret having watched that season. However, it was like CW channel teen softcore yeah. in that first episode. And I'm like, oh, there, there's, there's too much young child makeout for my level of comfort. <laughs> yeah. And so yeah. when you're saying, oh, Hopper went off the deep end, what would I do in Hopper's scenario? I'd go off the deep end because I, I'm looking at children making out every two minutes they got away from that and and you know a couple uh like second episode or whatever there's no more serious seventh grade romance you would also i Um, I noticed in in both season two and season three although then i i did a rewatch of season one and i think my memory is just faulty a little bit which is like the product placement and not product but the nostalgia product placement right like new like there was literally an ad for new coke in inside Stranger Things season three, it was like third, fourth episode in, and it's like, wh- what are we, what are we doing with this? Like, this has gone way off the deep end. But then I actually, and, and then plus I thought like all the music choices, like all the needle drops that they did, that were just the most like iconic sort of bad '80s music you could find, you know. Which, by the way, is like my wife's favorite stuff. She's like an enormous Def Leppard fan, and and so like. She's just loving the hell out of a lot of that aspect. But then I, I went back and watched rewatched season one, and I was like, you know, they actually kind of did a lot of that in season one, too. And I, I, wasn't, okay. I wasn't really paying as much attention to it. I think it's, it's more in your face. It's like, it's like Captain Marvel doing just a girl in, in the battle, like the final end battle or whatever. And you're like, eh, okay. Like, I get somebody, on the nose. somebody was like, hey, I know the song that we could choose. Like, you know, that stuff annoys then, me so much. It was really on the nose. That was one of the things that upset me with season three is I felt it was so 
on the nose. You know what movie I turned off because of that exact reason, because of like on the nose music choices was Suicide Squad. Oh my God. Yeah. I mean, I stopped watching that movie because of, because literally, because the music annoyed me. Yeah. But because you know, the story behind that too, right? Like, so, so the movie had been cut and I think David, David Goyer had somebody cut it. And then, um, the trailer park who did the, the actual, the trailers that everybody liked the super neon trailers then came in and got asked because the, I guess the movie was a total disaster or whatever, but they brought trailer park in to do a recut of the entire film. So what all that stuff in the beginning is literally a, a movie trailer company, like trying to edit a feature, but doing it in the same kind of, four second bites that you do a trailer in and you're like, well, that's not like, that's not how you edit that kind of content. Like that's not how you edit a coherent story. It's how you edit a promo. Right. And, and, (laughs) and yeah, to, to flip music every, literally every like eight seconds in the opening of that movie and, and to just bounce around in locations. It's, it's like the most ham fisted way of introducing. Yeah. Let me rephrase introducing like images of people that you will later maybe think are characters, right? Like you have no idea who they are or what they do or what they care about other than the super ridiculously on the nose, you know, you don't own me, but you know, whatever, like all that kind of crap. <laughs> You're like, Oh, okay. She's badass. I got it. Okay. All right. Cool. So I want to point out to anybody listening, we didn't actually prep Sean with these topics. No. Okay. And so, when Kevin mentions something like Suicide Squad, Sean has no idea that he's going to bring up Suicide Squad and goes into the who and how of of the editing and the process on all of this. Welcome to the mysterious (laughs) world of Sean Malone, okay? And (laughs) And why he's here today with us. (laughs) Uh, And so what I want is for the master of masters on this sort of thing to diagnose Kevin on why it went wrong for him. Why did Stranger Things season three lose him. Well, I have some things to bring up that I would like to like your input on. I'd like to know. Uh, one of which is way too many characters. Mm. I feel like they introduce new characters without writing off old ones. And all of a sudden you have all of these characters, especially like the, the core gang of kids Yeah, where it seems like they're a baby old... gang of sorts. <laughs> it seems like <laughs> They'll sit around to diagnose a problem and then just almost go down the line and each have one line so that they have something to say rather than actually having some element of their character be involved or changing or actually have a like a motivation to to be there or to be progressing the scene in some way. Instead, it's almost kind of like a paint by numbers. OK, now Lucas says this. And now, you know, Mike says this. Yeah. So, so, so that's one big thing for me is way too many characters without anything to kind of do anymore. So it seemed like just a paint by numbers. Well, now this person has to talk and now this person has to talk. And it, and yeah. it didn't seem like a natural part of the flow. I mean, that, that always, I mean, I think that always happens when you have that big an ensemble. It's really hard to manage. You know, I mean, like we do. It's funny, like I'm not exactly like Joss Whedon or anything, but I've done stories where there are, you know, like animated pieces with common sense soapbox and stuff where they have three or four different 
different characters or, you know, five or six in, in like the most extreme cases. And whenever you have that situation, you're like, well, th- this person literally just not going to talk for like a good chunk of the time. And then, and that's, that's been a thing I've, I've done before. Even the thing that you and you and I did, um, the invisible hands thing, like part of, uh, and that was only three people, um, balancing, figuring out like who was going to take this line or that line and how does it, how do you modify it to fit? It's such a skill. And that's where like, I do think, you know, I'll, I'll use Joss Whedon again as, as a sort of a master on doing that kind of stuff. Like it's hard, man. It's real hard to do that. And you're right. They got a ton of characters, Billy and, and, uh, uh Mike's no, it's, it's Mike's mom. Right. I don't remember. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Mike's mom. You know, and, and all that stuff. And like when, when they started that bit too, with like Mike's mom and then all the other moms, it didn't occur to me that I had met all of those characters before at, at first. Like I was like, Oh, there's just some moms. And then I was like, Oh right. wait, no, that we, we actually, we've met all these people at one point or another, but I forgot about them because they're not actually really important to the core, you know? No. And it feels like, okay, I'm just going to say that I, I, this is, might be an exaggeration, but I really think that stranger things two and three in my mind, from what, from where it started is the is analogous to the matrix. I feel like the Matrix One <laughs> is this is this great thing that had so many new ideas and it was so fresh. And then they made two and three, and it was like, what, 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 what did you do? Like, what, what happened here? Them fighting I, words, man. Like that's harsh. I know. I, okay, it's harsh. It's, it's harsh, so harsh. But that's that's how that's how that's how strongly I feel about how much I loved the matrix and, and did not like the sequels. I never even watched the third one. Let me ask you though. And did you, did you watch the sequels? Did you feel that way? Well, I guess you would have, because if you, if you skipped three, then you probably would have already hated two, but like, did you feel, cause I didn't really feel that way. Like I felt like matrix one. Awesome. You know, and I was perfect. I think we all are probably cause we're old. It's like all exactly the right age for that. You know, it's 19, 19- 98, 99, right? 99. 99. And I'm, you know, I'm like a junior in high school or maybe a sophomore or junior in high school, or maybe it came out in the summer between the two. You know, God, I'm 16 years. It couldn't be the most perfect demo for the matrix. Right. And also the, all the, like the bullshit philosophy and, and, you know, like all of that kind of stuff. It's just perfect for where I'm at at that, at that age. And then, so I, I like, I was so excited to go to see Reloaded and, and what's shit, what's the other one? Revolutions. Revolutions, yeah. And, uh, but then my wife and I tried to rewatch them, you know, a year ago or something. We hadn't seen them in a long, long time. It was good 10 years or so. And we, we were just mortified by the whole experience. And we, <laughs> and we gave up, like we gave up immediately. Like th- these are, this is so bad. Um, and we got through like one and I'm like, okay, this is cool, but it's not nearly as cool as we remember it being. And then, uh-huh. and then we got to two, and we're like, oh boy, this is <laughs> this is real bad for me. It's not expanding or going into the cool ideas that you set up to begin with. So, it, my example in the Matrix was Zion, and the first Matrix, Zion, Zion. It's like this promised land that, like, if we can only get there, then like that's where reality is, and and we can all humanity can, can reform and whatever. And then you get to Zion and in, in, in the second season or the second movie, and it's like a cave 
It's yeah. like this horrible, dank cave. But, and I'm like, this is the promised land, some terrible cave <laughs> where you're like having a rave in a cave. But there there was but there was a rave. And that's what you've got to keep in mind. It was a rave. And we're all supposed to love that. And that's supposed to be the pinnacle of human achievement is EDM. And I guess. <laughs> <laughs> no, a rave in a cave. And the same thing with, with Stranger Things where it's like, ooh, the upside down. What is that? I can't wait to explore what what's what's the upside down is. And like Will is still infected at the at the end of season one. What is that going to turn into? The answer is nothing. <laughs> it turned into nothing. There is no exploration of the ups, upside down. We have no idea what it is other than a boogeyman comes from there, I guess. I don't know. Who cares? Because here's an ad for new Coke. Like, it just seems so lazy what they did with it, where it's like they created this archetype in season one and then just copy and pasted it into two and three with different set pieces where they're like, okay, in season three, we're going to have like a Terminator guy. Yeah. And, uh, and, and then we're going to have like, um, you know, Nancy is going to get an internship and that'll be a subplot. It's like, which didn't last very long either. Like that subplot disappeared very, very quickly. I mean, no. And it's like, you're an unpaid intern. Like you shouldn't be in these meetings, like figuring out what the newspaper is. Well, but they treated her quite badly. I mean, it wasn't so much that they treated her as a lobby as it, you know, they were quite abusive toward her. So it was like insult to injury kind yeah, of thing. And it was, I, it was look, cartoonish. I agree. I agree with Matt on this in, in, in that sense. Although there's the part, there's the, there's the part of me that has had a lot of interns in the past where I'm like, did no, you treat them I, like I, that? I would, I would never treat anybody the way that, that Nancy got treated, but also like, I will give people the side eye when they come in and they're like, Hey, I've got, I've got all the ideas and let me tell you how, how to do this. And I'm like, <laughs> You're you're 20 and you've never done this before. So <laughs> I don't So you have some sympathy for the abusers I, this, is what I'm the hearing. Slightest bit. It's not, you know, again, but I would but I would also I would abuse the kid, you know, I'd abuse everybody in that in that situation in to the same degree, which is like, yeah, I, I'm an equal gender, equal opportunity like a uh, skeptic of interns being, being, uh, you know, worth coming to a room and stating their opinions about things. Well, the idea that she shot out too wasn't <laughs> no, crazy or no, insane. Not at all. It was, it was, here's the thing. Yeah. And, and she got heat for having the gall yeah. to, yeah. to ask. Right. But, but yeah, so the idea she proposed was actually a pretty good idea for a local yeah, for paper. Sure. Uh, in a market sure. that's And small. actually that, that like maybe yeah. we can segue a little bit into the kind of stuff that we talk about or that I talk about a lot anyway is like, you know, one of the things that Fee does, I think really, really well that I, I wish was advice that other people like just inherently understood or, or heard in their schooling and their, in their daily life all the time is that like financial success and like just generally economic success as, as an individual like largely comes down to value creation for other people. And I think this is a like a crazy important lesson that I didn't get taught when I was a kid that I don't think most people ever get taught when they're really young. And it and it's pretty basic in a sense, but it's like if you want to get the a better job, you want to get raises, you want to get bonuses, you want to get, you know, and you want to start your own business, right? Like all of that comes down to or your success at doing all of those things comes down to how well 
are you serving the needs of the, the people that are paying for you, basically? And if that's your employer, that's one thing, but also like as an entrepreneur, it's, your, it's directly your customers a lot of the time, you know, and the, the better you do that, at least in, in the context of, you know, a, a market economy that's relatively free, like what we have, you know, then the better you do that, the, the more successful you're going to be in general, right? And we see this, I think the funny thing is like now we live in a weird world where I think everybody, um, everybody who comes on your show and probably listens to your show, like, like big YouTube fans and, you know, they're, they're into all this kind of stuff. And you can see it in this arena so directly, right? Like create, create value for your, uh, for your audience and your audience will reward you, you know, and, and not just, like with views and clicks and likes and all that junk, but also like with Patreon subscriptions and they'll buy your merch and, and all of those kinds of things. But only if you are offering them something that they really enjoy, you know, and, and as long as you keep doing that and Kevin, I guess that gets into your, you know, in the, in the hamster wheel conversation and all that kind of stuff. But like in general, you know, the, the better you are at serving other people, the, you know, the more likely it is that you're going to be successful. And that's actually to the Stranger Things point with Nancy, I think the weirdest thing about it for me is like the, you know, the people who work at the newspaper, like the Jake Busey, you know, and, and all that. It's like they're, they clearly have an ambitious, like smart person on their hands who's brought them what's potentially an interesting story, you know, like whatever. But the idea that, I mean, they, but they're so incensed by the the notion that maybe specifically because she's a girl she would bring it to them and have the gall to bring it to them that they're overlooking the fact that she's actually like adding value to the organization which you know happens in the real world but also like over over time and like you know that's actually a good instinct to have is to come in and say hey i heard about this story maybe you guys uh you know, would find it interesting. And maybe our audience would find it interesting. But then, by the way, remember that you're an intern and step away and, and let other people whose job it is to make those decisions do it instead of being like, you know, kind of overly zealous about it, I guess. It's the, it's the opposite. When I, when I, I had an internship with Late Night with Conan O'Brien. Who? Yeah, uh, yeah. No, I've never. The, uh, <laughs> the television, uh -uh. television guy. Conan, now, now Conan he's a the podcaster according to Variety. So I've seen that. Yeah. Anyway. His advice, literally, literally day one, when all of the interns come in and there's like 25 interns, nobody gets paid. You don't talk to anybody except the intern coordinator. Okay. You don't wow. talk to anybody except your wrangler, <sighs> essentially. I, I'm like, not kidding. Was he said the people who will be successful are the ones who put their head down and do their work. Yeah. That's what he said. That's what Conan O'Brien said to me. So that's an ethos that I have tried to, to, to live out in a lot of different ways. So that was part of my annoyance with the well, Nancy subplot of Stranger Things, where it's like the total opposite of what, but see, you I, know, a Conan, who I consider a mentor, uh, suggested was look, the path I, to success. I, I get that too, but also I, I want to be clear, like, to, to sometimes that is creating value for other people, right? Like, and this is where I was kind of, you know, complaining or joking around a little bit about like interns that I've had in the past. And I've had some good interns, right? But the worst, I'll say the worst interns I've ever had are all the ones who get in the way. And there, and a lot of times that is really well and 
well-meaning, right? Like they, they want so badly to help that they end up like just stepping on your toes all the time. Cause they're just, they're just there constantly. And, and look, I had, I had an intern once. Um, I don't know how many people in your audience are familiar with, with the way that boom, boom mics work and boom poles and that kind of stuff. But basically it's a telescoping pole. It's pretty straightforward, right? You have a little, little, uh, you know, screw point at each of the, you know, at least each of the telescoping joints, then you screw it tighter or looser and you, you know, whatever, right? It's very simple. I had an intern who, like, he was so zealous about putting this away because we were packing up and he's like, oh, I got it. I got it. I got it. That he unscrewed it to a point that the whole thing came apart. And, and I was, and, <laughs> and he was, cause he was like, it's not tightening. I'll just keep going like more and I'll just do it more and more and more. Cause he was loosening it, not tightening it. And it, the whole thing just collapsed. And then I was like left with this, these pieces, like six pieces of <laughs> telescoping boom pole that are, it turns out really hard to get back together once that is, is, is undone. <laughs> I didn't know you could um, pull it apart. Well, you can't you really could pull do it that. like all the way apart, but now, but now it doesn't lock. So now it's just, you walk around with it and it's just flopping about and, you know, telescoping and folding back in and on itself. It's, it's a, it's a mess. And it was like, just one of those moments where I was like, just, just give me the thing. And just let me, let me, let me do it because this is now, now my time is going to be devoted to fixing this instead of actually like doing the thing that I want to do. And for somebody like Conan, actually, I totally get that because it'd be so easy to have like 20 interns, like telling you jokes where you're like, like, like oh my do this joke on, no, no, like leave me alone. <laughs> Nobody wants a floppy no, boom, by the way. It's useless. No. Completely no. useless. And, but can we also agree that the greatest moment in boom mic history in film is Scotty and Boom? <laughs> you know, um, oh, <laughs> Philip Seymour Hoffman holding the uh, boom. That is a, <laughs> I don't, that is a good be a contender. Uh, I'm going to give you, uh, as, a, as an alternative suggestion, Matt Stone in Orgasmo. Oh, oh my which gosh. Is, which is I haven't seen that movie in a and, long time. And, my and, and, and I'm going to be honest with you. I don't even think I can repeat his, his like catchphrase in this. But, <laughs> uh, but no. I'll just say for the over 18 crowd out there, go check it out. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Before we move on, I want to just wrap up my Stranger Things thing. Okay. okay. First of all, if you love Stranger Things, more power to you. I do not want to soil or sour anybody's interest in that show. I think that it is cast really well. It's shot beautifully. It ticks all the boxes in terms of its storytelling and pacing mm -hmm. and all of that stuff. The, the music is is really good. If not a little bit on the nose, that's a great. I think the score, by the way, is excellent. Right. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the theme song. I just personally feel, here's, here's what I'll say, that the first season was an archetypal great story. And then season two and three are TV shows based upon it. Mm. I don't know if that makes sense to anybody else, but I think season two and three are TV shows based on season one. Obviously season one is also a TV show, <laughs> but I feel like it's a standalone perfect story that they then had to 
make a TV show I like, out of it. I like how you... So uh, season one is yeah, Happy Days. Yeah, and that's... Uh, season two is like, Joni loves Chachi. <laughs> yeah. I like, like how, you, how you did a metaphor yeah. and then you backtracked to explain the metaphor. <laughs> 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 The other day, I'm playing golf with Hulk Hogan, and I turned to Hulk and I said, Hulk, give me a book recommendation. If, if you could read any book for the rest of your life, for the rest of your, you know, handlebar, mustache, 24-inch pythoned life, what would it be? And he said, brother, Hyperion by Dan Simmons. I said, oh my gosh, I love that book. Genuinely, Hyperion by Dan Simmons. Nobody talks about this book. I've heard that, uh, who's that guy? Bradley Cooper, the actor, owns like the movie rights or maybe the TV show rights to Hyperion. What are you doing with them, Bradley? Like turn it into something or maybe not. Maybe, <laughs> maybe it would end up being bad, but you know what's not bad? The book, Hyperion by Dan Simmons. And you can listen to it by going to audibletrial.com slash the create unknown. If you do that, you can get the audiobook for free. You get a 30-day free trial, cancel anytime, that sort of thing. You support the create unknown. You support this show that you like, and you also get to listen to one of the coolest sci-fi books that I've ever read. There's actually two books. It's Hyperion and then The Fall of Hyperion. Uh, but trust me, if you if you check out Hyperion, you'll definitely read book two. But I'm just letting you know, there are two books and you should read both of them. Well, not read, listen, because you can listen to them. You like listening to things and, and, and you should listen to Hyperion. That's all, that's all I'm trying to say. Look, audibletrial.com slash the create unknown. That's a website where you can get Hyperion by Dan Simmons upon the recommendation of a golfing Hulk Hogan. So let's get into um, Out of Frame, which is a, a fantastic series that you do. Thank you. On the Fee YouTube channel, where you extract lessons, economic lessons out of pop culture items that now, millions of people are familiar with, whether it's Avengers Endgame or Black Panther, mm -hmm. and then kind of tell, a, like you said, a new story that's based upon the story that everybody's already familiar with, but maybe not thinking about it the way that you think about it. So why don't you extrapolate a little bit about Out of Frame and, and how you think about doing that series? Um I mean, you know, it's it's funny you guys kind of set this up to, for me to say this this way anyway, but it is really just how I think about, I mean, most of that stuff, like if you listen to my wife and I talk after we've left a movie, it's it's pretty much the basis of, of the kinds of things I end up doing on the channel. And I do think, you know, it gets into a, a difficulty that I have a little bit, um, you know, working for an organization with a specific mission, as opposed to just being a YouTuber that can kind of do whatever, you know, it's really hard. And maybe this is the the treadmill part of it too. I have to actually like, like the, sh the movie or, and not even just like it. Like I could, I could hate it too and have, have a reason to do it there. But the one thing that I really can't be is totally unfamiliar with it. And like, just, you know, sort of feel sort of mediocre about it. You know, like, there's no version of, of an episode that actually works 
where I don't care a lot about the subject matter, you know, one way or another. Like I could probably do a Suicide Squad episode just to rail against all of the, the horrible aspects, although it just wouldn't fit fee in that case. That would just be me redoing <laughs> the, the folding ideas video on its, uh, on its horrible editing. And, uh, you know, nobody needs that. So I'll just leave it, leave it to him to, to handle it. But um, no, so the, the basic premise is that like, I'll, I'll take a movie, you know, um, like, like uh, infinity war or, you know, I guess, um, the one that's coming up is on The Boys, for example, uh, the the Amazon show. And uh, I don't know if you guys have seen The Boys. I, I thought, Matt, you were probably like working your way through it a little bit. Yeah, I've seen two, um, maybe three episodes. OK, well, then I'll, I'll talk about uh, Endgame instead, because that it's something that everybody's probably familiar with. But so like. You know, I did a, a pretty successful video on Infinity War, um, and I talked about like Thanos's motivation is basically this sort of overpopulation. Um, it's it's based on an idea by this guy Thomas Malthus, who was a you know um, e- ecologist and and you know sort of social scientist in in the 1800s, and Malthus believed that humans were basically like deer where there'd just be a, a carrying capacity of the planet and we'd hit that capacity and we'd all die, right? And Malthus made all these predictions about, you know, overpopulation and what would happen as we, as we grew the population of humanity. And the reality is, like, none of his predictions came true. Um, and for a whole lot of reasons. Like, yeah, there were, and people pointed this out after I did the video and stuff, but there are, yeah, there were, there are wars and there were, you know, the, the, you know, plagues and things like that that have kept population down to some extent, except for it's still true that the, especially since Malthus, but even in the last 50 years, and and that's actually, I think, a really important figure, it's still true that the global population of the earth has expanded tremendously from like 7 billion to like 10, you know, or sorry, from I think where it was like 5 billion to, to the 7 or 8 billion that it is now, and it's on its way, you know, towards 9 or 10 billion and uh, and yet at the same time we have dramatically improved our our food output the um, the number of people in in raw terms in, in actual nominal figures and as a percentage of the human population who are living in poverty uh, is way way down um, we, we over the last forty years we've cut poverty in half global poverty in half um, absolute poverty is is going down tremendously child labor is down right like there are all of these things that Malthus and sort of his his heirs, I guess, um, people like I also talk about Paul Ehrlich, who was an ecologist in the in the 70s who made a bet with uh, with an economist named Julian Simon, who to for whom a lot of the stuff that I talked about in that episode is is modeled after. But, um, you know, if, if it was true that overpopulation was the kind of thing that or if the human population in general as that went up in a sort of a linear way or even in an exponential way, we were increasingly running out of food or we were running out of resources, then we would see exactly the opposite of what the world has actually seen over the last 30 or 40 years. And so I, I know that stuff. Like, that's in my head already when I'm watching Thanos talk about how, you know, he's got to genocide half the population of, of the universe you know, in order to make room for more people thriving. It it really, that stuff sticks with me because I've thought about these other issues a lot for a long time. So when I see something like that in, in film, 
like my brain starts going like, well, here's, first of all, here's a great opportunity to talk to people about that and to introduce people to some ideas that they're probably not super familiar with. Um, I mean, this is, this is true. Like there are studies that come out and forgive me, I haven't looked up the most recent iteration of this, but a very small percentage of the population thinks that there are fewer people um, starving or, you know, in poverty today than 20, 20 years ago. Most people think that poverty is increasing, right? It's similar, like most people think that like gun violence and, 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 you know, physical violence is increasing when it's gone down dramatically. Right. Um, because frankly, I think that that like that's what in, invades all of your your consciousness from all the movies and the TV shows that you watch. It, you know, you you watch something like Elysium or you know something like even uh, Battle Angel Alita kind of has the same vibe to it, where there's like this stratified here. The rich people live up here, and as the Earth get, gets more populated, everybody else is poorer and poorer and poorer. And that's actually not true. And the reason it's not true is because as we expand in, in population, that's more, the way that I like to say it is it's, it's not just more mouths to feed, but it's also more, more minds to create and more hands to build, right? So we all come up with better and better ways of doing things. And then we end up with stuff like, you know, beyond burgers and, and you know, like <laughs> uh, boats that go out and pick up all the plastic in the ocean. And it, we stop using trees for everything and, and start using, you know, the computer that, you know, we, we didn't use before to replace all of the trees that we were cutting down. And it just we can use fewer resources in general. And actually, we can invent new resources while at the same time growing the population and end up with like a really pretty awesome world, as long as you know people can be entrepreneurial and they're not under the thumb of, of horrible dictators and all that kind of stuff. And so that's, I mean, I, this is kind of a long-winded answer, but like that, this is what I think about when I watch something like Infinity War. And then because I did the Infinity War one and that, and that did, I don't know, three quarters of a million views or something like that. And, and so... Then I got 8,000 comments on it, you know, and I, and I read a lot of the comments. So I was thinking, what am I going to do when Endgame comes around? And uh, in the Endgame one that I, I just put out a, a, the, the beginning of this month, um, I, I talked more about environmentalism and I talked about more about how, um, you know, entrepreneurs, you know, operating in, in basically free markets, uh, you know, help clean up the environment, actually. Um, and then I also talked about Thanos sort of revealing himself in Endgame to be just a, just a dictator and nothing else. Because there's the moment, I, sorry, I'm going to spoil the tiniest bit of Endgame here, but there's the moment where he says, you know, you, you guys all taught me a lesson. I'm going to go back to the beginning of the universe and make it so that nobody knows that I have wiped out, you know, trillions of people. And so that everybody will just agree with me on the next round. Right. Which is just the, the most classic dictator move possible. Right. Like, like, um, and actually if I can like the, to, to go into what I'm going to talk about with the boys, I'm going to talk about, um, you know, military contracting and, and the government as the, the primary, uh, buyer of, of large scale violence in, in the world. 
And it's it's actually a super dark episode, and I'm kind of worried about how it's going to do as a result. But and also, it's going to get demonetized really, really hard. But that's <laughs> but that's fine. Yeah. Um, but because man, yeah. But one of the things I learned was that, like in in the Soviet Union, I, I don't know how many people are familiar with the the term Lysenkoism, but this guy Mofrin Lysenko was was Stalin's chief geneticist, and he was a lunatic. And he had, he like rejected standard genetic theory at the time. He had his own ways of doing things. And those things caused massive famines in both Russia and China and everywhere else that his ideas were adopted. But he, he did what Thanos is doing, which is because he had these ideas and because he had power and because the state could imprison or, or murder people, he rounded up like 3,000 ecologists uh, biologists and geneticists and sent them to prison because they disagreed with his, his, you know, kind of kooky genetic beliefs and, uh, you know, had a bunch of them killed and, and all that kind of stuff. But like, that is, that is where Thanos sort of reveals himself. And thus I, I get to talk about, you know, obscure and kind of horrifying history of dictatorships as well, <laughs> which I don't know, that sounds super fun to me, but, you know. <laughs> Talking about the nuts and bolts of some of these things, loses people yeah. if you don't wrap it into a story. And that's why yeah. I like your videos so much because as I, you know, I said a while ago, you make these narratives out of it, right? And that plays off the original story that you're talking mm-hmm. about. But you mentioned something to me. We were uh, on the phone a couple of weeks ago. Well, it couldn't have been that long because uh, it was Mindhunter coming out. Oh, yeah. And you said there's this moment in Mindhunter, which I hadn't gotten to yet. And I'm glad that you pointed it out and, and gave me a heads up on this moment because I don't think I would have realized it was there had I not had had I not known. But help me out with the two guys' names. Holden is the young one. Is that right? Uh, yeah, Holden yeah, the young yeah, Hol- yeah. Holden's the, the younger one. Bill Bill Tench. Tench. Bill yeah, is yeah. the old one? Yeah. Tench. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So they're at a mixer, uh, a party kind of thing. And Bill is telling these fantastic stories about Charles Manson and everybody around him is yucking it up. I mean, they're loving it. They're just really enjoying themselves and it's super ruckus. And then Holden comes over and starts going into the real details about what this stuff means. And to all those people who were just yeah. having a great time, he might as well have picked up a cereal box and started reading the ingredients. Yeah. You know, they shut down, they walk away. Yeah. And in the context of what we're talking about now, that's precisely the difference between talking about something. Like I can go to somebody and say, isn't it crazy that in my lifetime, a billion people in China alone have been lifted out of poverty? Yeah. That's, yeah. that's a nutty statistic to think yeah, about. Like now, now poverty in China is extremely low. Uh, and we grew up thinking, you know, with like parents telling you, Clean your plate. Starving kids in China would be yeah. happy to have that. Yeah. Well, now there aren't starving kids in China. <laughs> like, I want what's on their plate. To be fair, um, there are but, still starving kids in China. Just, just right, to be clear. But not too China's nearly not the quite degree. there yet. But yes, yeah, it it's is not 1987 anymore. Well you know? on its way. Yeah. So that's the big difference, though. We can talk about yeah. that stat, and maybe somebody finds it interesting. Maybe they don't. Yeah. You know, but what, if you that's know what else, woven into by the way, Matt, if I if I can interject here a little bit because this is the kind of thing that I think about a lot is also. And this is crazy important for people to understand that food didn't come off your plate. It was, <laughs> no. it was new food was created. 
And they are, you know, new wealth was created. And so it's not because that's a thing that I've been dealing with in comments a lot lately, especially the China stuff with, you know, everything that's going on with trade wars and tariffs and all that junk. But it's like, no, this is it's not zero sum. It's not like we had all the food and now China has all the food. and Now we're starving. Neither of us are starving anymore. Like this is getting better and better and better across the board. But yeah, it's a completely insane thing to be able to say. Telling uh, wrapping that up into a story, though, allows you to talk about these big conceptual issues. Like you uh, were able to talk about why Thanos has has a problem with his philosophy. Yeah. Why is and that the way you framed it in that episode was that he's not just evil; he's he's flat out wrong. Mm-hmm. I mean, he, that's a really important thing to talk about. Yeah. And you could have run a bunch of numbers out and. It would have sucked. It would have been terrible. Nobody would have wanted this. Yeah, no. At all. No. But you least, didn't do it that Least of way. all me, by the way. I mean, it's, <laughs> but so you, I mean, that's, again, I think going back to what I said about, uh, about my role at Fee, that's been different from most of the other places that I've worked. You know, I've worked for, for different kinds of nonprofits and stuff. And, you know, honestly, like media to a large extent, you know, and I, I won't, I won't like call anybody out, but pretty much everywhere I've ever been. Otherwise, media is sort of an afterthought a little bit. I mean, it's, it's kind of like we want to get this idea out, but we've written a white paper. And so what we would like you to do as the creative producer is to make the white paper like 10% less boring in video form and just, just present the white paper. And maybe we'll give you the economist who wrote the white paper and you can make that person a talking head in your video and then overlay some animated charts. And you go, okay, I can do that. Like I'm capable of doing that, but nobody's going to watch it. And, and nobody does watch it. And look, Kevin, you are, I mean, you are far and away better at this than I am in terms of like how you deal with math and, and really complex philosophical concepts. And like to make all of that stuff entertaining, it's the same, it's exactly the same problem, right? It's you could show people the equations or you could show people the, you know, like the, the, the formal proofs of various paradoxes and things, but would they get anything at all out of that? You know, I, I, I wouldn't like, I would, I would even turn it off and I actually like, challenging myself in that way. And I, I I can't get through a lot of that stuff. Well, I think because we learn through stories and we learn through things that we are able to relate to. So I think that's why out of frame works so well. Yeah. Especially when you're tackling these big blockbusters, because you're meeting people halfway, right? You're not, you're not forcing some, some sort of concept or topic down their throat. You're saying like, Hey, all you people that are already in this boat, I'm going to sit next to you in your boat. And, <laughs> and I'm and gonna I'm gonna tell bore you with, with <laughs> philosophical <laughs> gonna, conversations. I'm gonna do my best not to bore you yes. while we're in this boat yeah. together. Yeah. What do you think? Yeah. So you know, you work for a foundation mm-hmm. and you've worked for others in the past yeah. where directors or whomever donors come in and they say, Hey, make this really dry thing into something that's exciting in a video. What do you think the disconnect is then between you knowing how to do that properly and them not understanding how to do that properly. Like where's it going wrong? Man, that is, that is like the $24 million question to be honest. And it, and because, uh, you know, uh, cause I do have these conversations with donors and, 
again, I'm not going to like call anybody out on any of this stuff, but I've been at events and things with potentially big donors who all have, they all have an idea, you know, like they all have their own, like if only we could make this TV show or we could make this movie, or if you you could make this YouTube video, like we would, this idea would get out into the world and we would love it. And it's almost invariably like the worst idea I've ever heard. <laughs> um, and is there, is there an example that you would be comfortable sharing? There's gotta be somebody um, that, that threw you an idea who's dead now. No. <laughs> <laughs> you can't throw them under the no, bus if they're already buried. Well, like I could say like, uh, okay. In really sort of vague terms, right? Like we, we do this, uh, we do a, a big conference in Atlanta uh, every year called FECON. And you guys, th- th- at one of these events, I met a donor um, who, you know, has this idea. And his idea is basically to create a series of, um, well, not even much of a series, maybe like three, uh, what are essentially very generic political ads that are like voiceover narration with like pretty basic animation you know, saying that, like, if we don't change this or that policy, you know, we're going to have all these problems in the future and whatever. And it's very dour and it's very like, you know, like, you know, voiceover narration in like a sort of a negative campaign ad. Right. Like, we, so, we, so it's we, meant to be a wake up call. Yeah, it's meant to be a wake up call or whatever. But but he believes that that if only these things existed, that the entire world would change. And I'm not really exaggerating that much about that. Like, he really believes that, like, if if we could just make these things written in this way, in this format, like, everybody would wake up to the problems of, you know, let's say deficit spending or something like that, where you just go, but the reality is, like, literally nobody's going to watch this unless you put a, you know, $50 million ad campaign behind them. And honestly, like, they're not even made well enough to to go through that process, right? So you, you're not even going to be able to meet broadcast standards with any of this stuff. So nobody's nobody's <laughs> really going to, or you could do it all, all on online, and you know. But I think we all know this, and as as creators, I think we all have this experience where it's like you know you really can't force people to watch a video, no matter how much money you throw at it. Like you, you just can't. Like you can you can you can like push your video to be seen by a lot of people. But you can't make them click on it and you can't make them stick around for more than two seconds. Yeah, you know, that's the big one is you can't make them stay, take it seriously. Yeah. Do at the end, whatever you hope they do at the end, whether it's subscribe or like adopt a pet or whatever it is. Yeah. I think no. that, that just look at Hollywood. Yeah. Just like forget YouTube. Yeah, for sure. How, how look at all of the Hollywood blockbusters that flop. Yeah. Where they spend literally hundreds of millions of dollars this is, to say, "Hey, please watch Kevin Costner in Waterworld. It's going to be awesome." <laughs> and everybody's right. like, "Wait, he drank his own pee." You know, like, I don't. I, I like that. I don't think this. I like that. That's the meme out of that movie. Is just like one little moment of pee drinking, and that's all <laughs> anybody remembers. Just it's hard to forget. It's hard to forget. It's, it's yeah. etched yeah. In, in the collective unconscious. Um, but look, but it, it, that, this it, happens all the time it, in Hollywood no, and, with uh, lots and lots more money than anybody on Facebook or YouTube has uh, to throw Oh, at. my goodness. And, 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 they, and, and I don't want to say like, 
I'm sure that there's some big data people out there who feel like they've really got the got the code cracked or whatever, but I don't get the sense that they've gotten much better at it either because there's you know stuff like uh, Men in Black International that just came out that that tanked. You know, I mean, and, and yeah. the X Men, you know, X Men, uh, you know, Phoenix Saga thing that that just tanked really hard. And you're working with brands that have tons of initial name recognition. They've got major major stars. I mean. Tessa Thompson and, you know, Hemsworth in, in Men in Black and stuff. And like, you're not, and yet that, even that with a hundred million dollars of advertising behind it can still bomb. Like, yeah. What, what exactly do you expect your, like the thing that you made for $2,000 that you're willing to put another $5,000 of ad money behind? You know, like, but that's changing the world. I expect it to change the world. But that's that's the thing. And I'm I'm really not joking about that. Like, like I've, I've talked to these guys a lot and they, they really do have that big of an expectation with some of this stuff. And, and I, and I think a lot of it comes down to, um, you know, it's funny. I mentioned to, to Matt, um, I'm going to, I'm going to call out somebody. So forgive me for, it's been a long time. He won't remember who I am. Uh, oh, okay. But, but, okay, good. But good. he's, you know, if he hears this, I don't know, whatever. Um, there's this, there's this guy I mentioned to Matt. <laughs> then we'll have him on to talk we'll have, about it. Have him on. <laughs> um, there's, there's this guy I mentioned to Matt yesterday in a sort of obscure way named Bill Prince. And um, we'll just use Bill from now on. Um, Bill, <laughs> Bill was the, the, um, the, so I just, I got to go back a little bit. So my, my background, as I said at the beginning of this was, is in music. And I did, I have two music degrees and I, I worked it as a music supervisor for a commercial house. And then I went to work for uh, Barry Manilow's company. It's called Stiletto Entertainment. It's in, in Los Angeles. And um, it's a mostly like a music and show production company. You know, they do as big Vegas shows and all that kind of stuff. But they also contract with people like Holland America Cru- Cruise Line to or they did when I was there um, to, you know, run all of their live shows, you know, on board the ship and, and all their live entertainment. So I was responsible for four ships uh, and all of the live uh, instrumental performers who were on the ship. So I, I didn't do anything with like the, you know, the Broadway type shows other than the backup band for those shows. Um, but also I, I, you know, oversaw the, the pianists in the, in the, you know, in the restaurant and the, you know, jazz bands and all that kind of stuff. Bill Prince is the is the director of, of entertainment at Holland America. And Bill um, taught me a lesson sort of unwittingly that I have never forgotten, which is he wanted to um, he, he had a problem and it's a legit problem, which is that he had bands on all of these different ships and they had 12 or 13 of them at the time. And um, he had all these different bands that were all playing different music to varying degrees of quality. Right. Because. What would happen, as, as happens, especially when you're out in international waters and no corporate manager can tell you what to do, is somebody will come in and request a song, and if you're a little drunk or you're just ballsy enough to do it, you go, sure, why not? We'll, we'll take on, you know, come on Eileen or whatever, right? We'll give it a go, and we'll, we'll honor your request. Because you're thinking... Hey, here's somebody, they're at the bar, they're buying drinks, they're having a great time, they're listening to us, why not? But then what happens is you hack your way through a terrible version of Come On Eileen, and like all of the other people in the room are like, oh, that band was bad. 
So Bill had a legit problem to solve, but the way that he solved it, but so I, I will say, well, I'll get back to it. the way that Bill solved it. <laughs> I'll tell you how I would solve it. But the way okay. that the way that Bill solved it was by creating a book of arrangements that was about 300 songs, but they were all the songs that Bill liked. Like he didn't care what the audience thought. He was just like, these are all the, I'm rich, important guy who runs all of the entertainment about this whole company. And I will just decide what songs everybody gets to listen to on the ship. Now, my, my <laughs> solution, and it literally was what I was doing at the time, was I would be on the ship and I asked all of my, all of the music directors of all the different bands to take request cards and then give them to me. So that I could see if there were, this was my, my hope anyway at the time, was to see if there were, was there any kind of overlap? Like, did, did all the mm. people on all the ships request, um, you know, like, wanted by Bon Jovi or whatever, right? And probably yes, right, at some point. Um, and You'd be able to build a good database out of that, yeah. out of those requests. That's, that's yeah. pretty sharp. Y- yeah. yeah, and so that was kind of the idea is like, why not, why not actually just listen to the audience and see what the audience wants and then, you know, do our best, right? Like, we still need to limit it. We still need to figure out what songs. We still got to get them all arranged and, you know, limit the book. But, like, why not base the limit on, like, your most, most requested music, right? Uh, that, that would make the most sense to me. But Bill didn't care. And, and so this stuck with me. I mean, I, this was 10 years ago and it's always stuck with me because I, the way that I think about what I do now is always thinking about like, well, what do people like, what's the most likely thing that people are going to want? And if they leave me a comment that, or if a lot of people leave me the same comment, like I'm going to pay attention to that first of all, but also it gets me back to the donor question, which is like, those guys are, they're like rich dudes who are way outside the demographic that you're trying to reach. And, and that's cool. But like, so they're already a little bit out of touch, but then also they don't seem to be interested in asking the audience. Like they just, they have a message that they think is really important to get across. And it's so important that whatever method they want is the one that we have to, we have to go with. And it's always been a, like a weird battle, you know? And I, and I think it's a, a dangerous aspect of the nonprofit world, especially where you're sort of beholden to donors that maybe don't actually understand the target that they're trying to hit. And then how do you communicate that to them? And I, and I honestly, if somebody else has a better, like has, has great advice on how to communicate with, with those guys, like, you know, how to listen to audiences. Like I would, I would love to get better at that because it's, it's very difficult. So we're going to play chopped here for a minute and I'm going to throw four things at you and, and you're going to make a meal out oh of it. So do your best. All right. Okay. Because you've talked about a few different things and all of them are things that new small creators deal with constantly or people who are not small or new, but they're doing a new thing. All right. So you mentioned this, I will do, I will be, uh, or I will do something. Everyone will recognize my brilliance and that's, that's it. That's all I need. And I think of that, uh, this is an older reference, but in the movie Field of Dreams, the, the money quote there is build it and they will come or build it and he will come. Yeah. 
And that mentality seeps through everything where it's like, if I just do this one thing, uh, I'm going to have a million subscribers or make a million dollars or whatever. And there's actually no evidence probably that any of that's going to happen. And the reason that movie is so good is because it never actually works that way with anything. It is the field of dreams, (laughs) to be clear. (laughs) And it's also about ghosts. So, you know. (laughs) (laughs) So so you've got that kind of thing. And then you're talking about about getting feedback, getting data points, all of this. Um, What do you do when you're starting something out? You don't have data because you don't really have much of an audience. Going back to the episode we did weeks ago in terms of taking feedback and advice, at that point, the only people who are around you are probably ones who are encouraging you. That advice may or may not be valid. How do you, how do, you do this? How do you proceed smartly, efficiently, without any of those mechanisms in place? Because you have a lot of them. You get 8,000 comments on that Thanos video. Yeah. You can see how it yeah. plays out. You know, Kevin gets lots of comments on every Vsauce 2 video. We get comments on this podcast. But what if we didn't? What if we didn't have any of these things? How do you not suck? Well, okay, so the the very first thing that I did at, at Fee, well, there's a lot of, like, really early stuff. Like, I was, you know, talking to everybody in the organization to try to get a sense of, of the overall vision and, like, the, the brand. And I redid the brand standard guides and all that kind of stuff based on, what everybody I was hearing internally was saying, but I also like reached out to all of my friends who were themselves good creators. And look, I already had a lot of experience doing this. I I start, you know, like I said, I started in music, but like, let's say from like 16 to like 22, I was basically an amateur musician. And then I was, I was from 22 on, I've been paying for my life, you know, more or less, by creating stuff, either as a musician and composer or as a video producer in, in one way or another. So I, I have a lot of experience, many, many years of experience doing this kind of stuff. But even then, I was like, I wanted to get all of my, the, the people that I respect the most and whose work I think is the best that I know personally. And I want to get all of them together and I want to run ideas past them before I do anything. And so I started uh, started talking to folks then. And I'd be like, okay, I've got this idea that I'd like to do this, this, and this. And what do you guys think about that? And, or like, I would, you know, make, uh, an episode of something and be like, you know, what are your thoughts? Like, what, what can we do better? Tear this apart. But it's really important to get that kind of feedback. And I, I really super strong believer in the idea of getting it from people who actually have really good experience doing what you're trying to do. Um, and honestly, like the more I've thought about getting lay person feedback, the, like the less I'm interested in it, especially at the early stages of stuff, because like, you'll get some good insights. Like you'll get whether or not, like somebody will tell you whether or not you're boring them to death. And, and, and and that's actually a good insight. Right. But, um, but they can't tell you how to fix it. They, They can't tell you what to do to not bore them to death. You know, and all of your your like really talented creator buddies will do that. The other thing is like being radically honest about that stuff. So like to your point about people being, you know, oh yeah, that's great. Find people who who will really pick it apart. You know, um, I've got some, some some filmmaker friends and some screenwriter friends who will 
who will pick stuff apart. And now, by the way, just, you know, full disclosure, Matt picks my stuff apart. You know, I'll, I'll send Matt, you know, scripts for out of frame episodes sometimes. And Matt will, you know, read them and, and give me really good notes on, on a lot of that stuff. Like, and most of Matt's notes are like exactly to this point. Like, how do we make sure that this is not boring to people? You know? Yeah. And, and that's like mostly what you're focused on. And I, I appreciate that because there's always a little bit of this, like, there's like a, you know, gut check aspect, but there's also like a dummy check aspect of it where it's like, did I just like do something really stupid and not see it because I've been staring at this for three days, (laughs) you know, because that's possible that it happens, you know? Um, but that would be that the first step is like, like get, get a community of other creators who are really good and go talk to those people and then start putting stuff out there and see what happens, you know? And, and, and also I got to quote, almost quote Jerry, Jerry Seinfeld and, um, and Eddie Murphy just did an interview that I saw with, with Joy Reid the other day. Um, it's real new. It's like brand, brand new and you can find it on YouTube, which is where I watched it. But, um, Jerry got the audience asked the question of like, how do you work with writers, you know, who don't necessarily get your style of humor? And Jerry's answer, which I thought was really, really good, was basically like, just just ignore them. Like, just believe in yourself. Like, just trust that your sense of taste will carry you through, you know? And th- that's, a, like, that's like a dangerous proposition for somebody who's just barely starting out, but you'll develop it and but you're only going to develop that if you put stuff out there and it's yours and it's actually yours, you know, like you're, you're not going to like, I don't know. You guys have have both had this, you know, had a lot of time to develop a sense of personal style and taste. And, um, I, I don't, I don't think you can do it without actually just trying to put, put stuff out in the world, you know, and, and you recognize that like, it's not as good as you wanted it to be. And then do another one, try to get better and do another one. Another, another one. (laughs) Yeah. Like uh, Gary V uh, Gary Vaynerchuk pushes the same idea all the time in a different arena. He's not talking about making anything artistic or creative so much. Sometimes he does, but most of the time he's not, you know, he's talking about, uh, the services and products and things that people want to sell, um, doing a business, but he's just like, go, go do something, see how it goes, see what you like, see what you don't like, start collecting that data so that you can yeah. find out what other people value, going back to the value creation thing. Eventually, if you do this long enough, you will settle on something that you like doing, that you're actually quite good at, and that other people like, yeah. whether they're buying a product or just, you know, you're moving up the ranks in a company because they're rewarding that value creation. You can't do any of that on paper. You can't plan any of it no. out. You can maybe do that and see how it goes and constantly readjust the plan, but that plan itself is meaningless. Yeah. You have to go do it. Yeah, and I'm I'm a big fan of of really thinking through what I'm doing, but when I think about planning, I I'm so acutely aware of the fact that my plan is going to be derailed the first moment I, I start <laughs> implementing it. And so I I'm a big fan of being prepared. And I think being prepared, and, and that to me means, especially in the context of video creation, I think that means like understand the amount of work that's involved. Be prepared to give 
you know, 18 hours a day in some cases to actually making something work, right? And be prepared to, you know, to put in that little bit of extra effort all of the time and know that you're going to have to do that every single day and every single week, right? Be prepared for that stuff. But also, like, don't map out your next five years because you have absolutely no idea what that's going to be. And don't, don't worry about it. But I, but I would say, and Gary, Gary V is good about this too, get honest feedback from competent people, you know, and, and learn to tune out the incompetent people to, as well. Like, they're not going to help you that much. Like, you know, oh, 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 people always say there was always this thing in, in musician circles, and I'm sure it's elsewhere, where it's like, it's not practice makes perfect, it's perfect practice makes perfect. And I think that's important because, like, it's not just repetition, but it's also repetition with a mind to get good. And, and the only way you can really do that is by paying attention to what is good. And, um, you, you know, that's, that's a little bit subjective, but there's also a lot of technical aspects of it that I think are less so. And go find people who will tell you when your lighting is bad, like mine is currently. <laughs> I've noticed that a lot uh... More recently, I think, with kind of YouTuber clicks, yeah. YouTuber friend groups, whether it's like Gus Johnson and Eddie Burback and Nakey Jakey and Gus's brother Sven, like they have their boys supporting boys. Right. Thing. Yeah. Yeah. That just, I think the merchandise just dropped too. They, they did yeah. just drop merch on that. Uh, you have like the Reddit crew, which we, you know, we've talked about a lot. You have Carson and all of his friends. Yeah, with Ted Navision and yeah. Yeah, the Goop guys. Yep. So we are seeing, at least yeah. I am noticing more and more that there are these kind of like YouTube groups, scenes sort of of friends that are kind of coming up together. And, and you know, even iDubs, when we talked to him, specifically mentioned throwing stuff at Max. Yeah. Just to be like, hey, is this funny? Is yeah. this dumb? Because without that, trusted friend who will tell you when it's dumb <laughs> or right. will tell you when it's funny. Yeah. Uh, it's hard to know uh, in, in, a in a vacuum. You also can't forget Vsauce's one, two, and three. Right. It's tremendously right. helpful. Yeah. It's right. been tremendously yeah. helpful over the years. Yeah. Like, I can't think of a specific one. And even if I could, I, I probably wouldn't admit it. Uh, but I'm sure there's an idea that you've tossed out to Michael and Jake and they're like, no, man, this is not going to work. This is dumb. <laughs> you know, where they've had one and it's, you know, you've looked at it and you're like, no, you can't do this yeah. for X, Y, yeah. and Z. And then thank God it doesn't happen, you yeah. know, and, and other ones, uh, it, like I know we talked to Michael about paradoxes uh, at one point and he was really helpful saying, you know what, you can do something unique with this uh, that, you know, here's what's been done. Uh, think about it in a way that hasn't been done, you know, and having that that direction, that nudge there, getting some positive feedback like that. That's invaluable. You guys, you guys reminded me of something too, which is that like all of the, um, like the, the people who are like non creators who will give you advice. One of the things that's the biggest problem with that to me is that they don't actually know what's possible. And also I think it takes a lot of practice to get good at visualizing different scenarios for how a video could go, right? So I, I've met a lot of people who pitch an idea and this happens with like 
Um, I told Matt before we were coming in that I wasn't going to bitch about marketing people at all, but here I am a little bit. But I've had this, I've had this with marketing people over the years where they, they have an idea in their head for how something could look or could, could be or, or some video that they want to do or whatever, but they don't have the tools necessarily to articulate what that vision actually is. And so as a result, they're like, there's the creator who's actually being tasked with executing this thing. And then there's the person who's got the vision, but who can't communicate the vision with, with the creator, right? And that is a massive problem, especially because if they communicated the vision, sometimes if they communicated the vision that they believe is in their head, it would be an infeasible project for a lot of reasons, right? Like it might be like, crazy expensive or to get the shot that they want you'd have to fly a drone in like a no-fly area or <laughs> you, you know like there are all kinds of things that that you understand as somebody who is day-to-day -day actually doing the work you understand that like you know this person going on camera is going to be really boring or this subject is not visually appealing enough to to warrant a 20-minute project you know like um I don't know. Like, so I actually, a few years ago, I, I was like debating whether or not to do different uh, documentary projects. And one that I ultimately rejected was one that was all um, a, a digital company, a, a software company, because I, I couldn't wrap my brain around how to make a half an hour documentary when I had other choices, to be clear. But to, to make a half an hour documentary where all I could do was show people typing, like, it was not it was not a visually exciting experience. Instead, I did a documentary about a, a farmer who like has this gorgeous like 60 acre organic farm in Virginia. And we went we went out at Magic Hour and got all these great shots of like emus running around and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And like that. But that's a big factor. You know, like that's a that's a big piece of the puzzle. And like like the people who don't do that and don't have to make those kinds of decisions, they, they don't think that way. They don't think like, first of all, whatever's in my head is not going to get made the way that I think it's going to get made. And what's in my head is not possible without $10 million. Because they don't, they don't realize. <laughs> they have no idea. Yeah. You know, like that the only way I could make this exciting is with, you know, thousands and thousands or millions of dollars, then that's probably not a project I want to I want to say yes to, and and other people actually literally don't know that that's what's going to happen. Yeah, we we run into that on Vsauce too with some topics where a topic on paper sounds really interesting, and then it's just like, all right, but I don't know how this is a video. Like, how many I don't times has that happened? A lot. How many times have I been pumped, like jump yeah. out of bed in the morning yeah. because I, I got to this the night before, but I know I'm not going to talk to Kevin until nine or ten or something, and I, I'm like heating up at the keyboard, waiting for like his light to go green so I can throw this idea out. And in five seconds later, he's like, yeah, that thing's really cool, but you can't make a video out of that. It's not going to be visually compelling at all. And he's completely right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, but that's, that's such an important part of all of this. Like, this is the other thing I've, I've tried to, um, it, so Fee has, uh, you know, a, a long history. I mean, Fee's a 70, almost 75 year old organization. And, and so the overwhelming majority of that time, it's just been writ the written word. And that's been pretty much all of it. It's the written word and, and live seminars, lectures and stuff like that. 
And so it's only basically since I joined Fee in 2016 where we've had a, a, a video presence, right? And one of the things that when I first started, like a lot of people sort of pitched is like, oh, this is great. You're going to come into an organization with 75 years of articles that you can turn into video projects. And that's like on paper, that sounds awesome, right? Like it sounds like <laughs> this is going to be great. And then you start reading the articles and you realize that they're all like super academic and they're all like economists, like explaining deep, like difficult economics concepts. At least a lot of the historical ones are. They're getting less so over time, which is probably good. But they they like... I, I couldn't do anything with them. Like there was nothing that was visually appealing about it. I would have to, what I, what I learned very quickly was that like the only way that I could take those things was actually just to throw the article away, use the, the theme of the article and start from scratch. That's all I could really do Be, because like otherwise, like there was just no way to just take verbatim any aspect of it and turn it into a compelling, compelling video product. And, you know, and then as I've worked with the writers of the organization, one of the things that I've spent a lot of time doing is, and, and you have to do this, like reminding them that video is a fundamentally visual medium and that like there are all these things that you could say in dialogue that you don't have to and you probably shouldn't, right? Like there are things that you can say with imagery that work better with imagery and also like are using the medium in a way that it's meant to be used. Um, and it's more entertaining and everything else. But a lot of the, the script pitches that I get from people are, you know, so dialogue heavy and so like tell, don't show, you, you know, that they, they become unusable as well. Just because like you go, well, why is this better as a video than just write an article? Cause you're, you've just written an article. Like this isn't, you know, it didn't cut to anything interesting. There was no visual overlay that was like doing most of the heavy lifting in terms of explaining a concept. There's no visual irony to anything. I think that's super important, like using the visuals to, to you know, to reinforce the story, but also to be comedic, you know, or to, to provide some color to the, to the whole thing. Not in like a literal color sense, but like in a, in a metaphorical sense, right? Um, yeah, I don't know. I, it's, it's amazing that like the skills are just so dramatically different and, and working with people who have great, a great sense of like what's intellectually interesting versus what's actually going to, going to be conveyed in a visual medium in a really cool way. It's so different. As you're talking about things like uh, this disconnect between some people having an idea, other people executing it, uh, talking about things like too much dialogue, bad dialogue, it occurs to me that, that in one fantastic case, all of these things, idea, bad execution, bad dialogue, occurred in the mind of one man. And you may or may not have had an encounter with him. You, you don't know uh, if, if yeah, the man yeah, behind yeah, the room. Yeah. Like the donor. What? Uh, like a that? donor or something like that. Oh, no, I'm talking about the movie The Room. Oh, oh. Oh. That because that, we know how it gets with all sorts of different people involved and there's disconnects. But oh, I didn't know where you were going with that. Oh, the Tommy Wiseau movie. I, yeah. I didn't either. And this is the only thing that I was like moderately prepped on too. So this is <laughs> okay. Wait, wait, wait. 
Let's let's get into that on the other side of the wormhole, though. So we okay. have to go through our Patreon wormhole at this point. Okay. Can we tease? Can can we talk yes. about what else we're going to talk about too? Yes. We have really good things with what it's what it's like to take sometimes very boring concepts and make creative things out yeah. of them, like principles of economics. Like that's hard to do. Yeah. Uh, and what else should we have? Well, uh, James wanted to know a little bit more about your experience, kind of. Dealing with hot topics in economics or maybe politics in a way that will bring people to the table and doesn't turn into this kind of mob mentality thing where people are just kind of like shouting at each other and, and nobody's listening. I think that you are uniquely qualified to, to talk about that with, with a lot of your experience on, on fee. And also, and I don't know if this was an extension, excuse me, of James's uh, comment. Somebody asked why people are so hyper-confident that they know the right answer with economic stuff in a way that they, that they aren't with, with other topics. Like their convictions are so, so strong, regardless of what side they're on. They're just absolutely certain. And, and somebody asked why you think that is. And I, I have, I'd love to hear that I answer. have thoughts, so we'll okay. get into it. Well, we, we will get into it. We're going to hear those thoughts on the other side of the wormhole. That wormhole exists at patreon.com slash the create unknown for everybody else, thank you, Sean Malone. Check out B. Check out Out of Frame. And until next time, see you, Space Cowboys. Thanks for listening to The Create Unknown. There's more episode waiting for you, but to keep listening, sign up at patreon.com slash thecreateunknown. You could hear the rest of our conversation as well as unlock the ad-free feed, get exclusive content, join the Idea Baby Gang, and more. So find us over at patreon.com slash thecreateunknown. Thanks for listening to The Create Unknown. If you liked what you heard, and I certainly hope that you did, please subscribe wherever you're listening to this podcast and leave us a review on Podchaser and Apple Podcasts. Those reviews really go a long way. While you're at it, you can also watch the video version of this show on youtube.com slash thecreateunknown. Check out our Patreon. It's patreon.com slash thecreateunknown. You can get the full episode. You can join the Idea Baby Gang, become one of the known access creator services. There's a lot going on on our Patreon. It's all part of phase three of TCU. So go to patreon.com slash thecreateunknown. Follow us on social media. We tweet at createunknown. We're on Facebook and Instagram at thecreateunknown. You can follow me, Matt, and the show on Podchaser for podcast updates. You can also find a link to our Discord in the show notes. We love our Discord because we get to talk to you and you get to talk to us. So join our Discord. Our website is thecreateunknown.com. The Create Unknown is an unknown media production. We've been your hosts, Kevin Lieber and Matt Tabor. Check out what we do on YouTube at Vsauce2 and on Twitter at KevLieb and Tabor TCU. Links in the show notes. Executive producer is Dave Kiney. This episode was edited by Adam Ganong. Our theme song is by the incredible Mega Drive. Special thanks to Paula Lieber, Mo Lewitt, and Dorothy Kiney. Until next time, see ya, Space Cowboys.
Once again, this episode was brought to you by Audible. Pick up your free audiobook by going to audibletrial.com slash thecreateunknown. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash thecreateunknown. Do it. Your brain and your ears will thank you. Patreon. Patreon. No, no. <laughs> what is that? Silver bells. Yeah. Patreon.com slash the create unknown. As beautiful as silver bells.